Hello everybody, my name is Nicholas Stubbs and I am the co-founder of the Psychedelic Society of South Africa and I have been doing my very best to avoid <laughs> having to <laughs> interview people and be the host for this podcast for as long as I can but it's gotten to a place where the universe will no longer allow it. Nathan Maingard, who's the voice that you've heard on the previous interviews, is still with us and he will be in future episodes um, but just to share the workload and get involved in these conversations with these people who I'm so curious about I decided to jump in and help with the interviews so today I'm interviewing one of my really good friends and the founder of the Psychedelic Society of South Africa Mishka Latib. So Mishka is one of the smartest, most articulate and just overall aligned people that I know. As you'll hear, Mishka's story is pretty much as hectic as it gets. She really went to the dark side, alchemized it and came back and really has such a strong medicine to to share, such a beautiful way of holding space for anyone who she's around. Yeah, and she's really got the, the knowledge and the intellect to to back it all up. And although we covered quite a lot of ground in this episode, I had an endless list of questions that we didn't even make it halfway through. So there's definitely going to be probably many episodes of me and Mishka conversating. Um, I always feel like when I'm around her, I learn so much. And I think that your experience with this episode will be the same. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Mishka. Hi. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? It's going well. It's going very well. How are you? Cool. I'm good. A little bit nervous for this. Oh, yeah. But... Um, Really, I think it's a necessary conversation to have. Yeah, I think it's a good learning experience for both of us to actually yeah. start speaking and actually sharing the conversations that we've been having for, for such a long period of time. 100%. 100%. Okay, so we're just going to jump into the bunch of questions that I have here. Um, so first of all, how did the Psychedelic Society come into being and where did the idea come from? All right, so when it comes to the Psychedelic Society, you know, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, it's... So, I mean, initially it stemmed from, I think, something very similar to what you started out as, where I was looking for a community, uh, you know, a group of people who could understand what it was about psychedelics that I found very interesting, people that perhaps had the answers that I was looking for in terms of how to go about using plant medicine in a safe manner. Um, community is essentially what I was looking for, and that didn't really seem to exist in South Africa. And, I mean, I looked for it for quite a long period of time in different places, in different ways, um, there are a couple of very nice plant communities in South Africa, but none of them quite spoke the same language, I suppose, as mm. I did. Um, and, you know, at some stage it kind of dawned on me, and this was the part of my life where I started realizing that sometimes you've got to be the one to actually start making that community for mm. yourself and making the path. And it kind of stemmed from that. You know, there was also a point where I developed the sense of urgency in that you know, I could feel that things were shifting and it was time to start learning, start forming community and start actually being part of the shift that's actually happening. Mm -hmm. 
And so I thought to myself, you know, why not? Why not actually just kind of start something and see who comes, start gathering the people that are on the same mission as I am. And over time, it's been so interesting, the amount of people I've had that have come up to me and said, oh, um, you know, psychedelic society was actually just my idea. I had yeah. this, <laughs> you know, yeah. I had this idea five years ago, 10 years ago. Mm. And, uh, and you know what, I think it's absolutely beautiful because the mm. way that I see how, like how the universe works is, uh, I mean, once you have an idea, it's not yours any longer. Yeah. This is something that I think we always have to kind of keep in the back of our minds. Uh, it's just kind of like when something's in the ether, it's going to look for a point where it can come down and manifest. And sometimes if you're the one brave enough to actually step up and manifest it for all of us, mm. I say thank you. I say thank you for being the person to bring that idea down. Mm. I mean, you know, I think on average we have a good idea a day. And I'm not going to go and act out on all of them. But I know I'm very thankful for the people that do go do them at the end of the day. When I meet them, I say thank you. And so this is one thing that I thought that I can do this. The least I can do is have it kind of put down paper and start the community and let it go from there. Mm. And it's transformed into something completely beyond me. Uh, I think that's, yeah. you know, more than anyone. Yeah. You know, and it's beautiful to be able to watch it and see how it transforms further. Yeah. And what is your vision for it? Where do you see it going? I see it morphing. I see it morphing uh, quite a bit. I mean, at the end of the day, it's got to take on the life of its own. You know, a, a seed was planted, but what that tree is going to look like, I, not even I, have any idea. Um, mm. Where I see it going in the future, I mean, initially it was very much centered on uh, you know, looking at things like the law, and we went down that path, and we looked at where the law in South Africa is, how it's changing, what the barriers are to have it changed, who the people are like, that are working. And, you know, earlier on, on this podcast, you had Paul Michael, um, who is phenomenal, and he's doing such a great job. There wasn't really space for that to be a real standing point for the society. Mm. Um, now we're kind of looking at events and actually creating community. So community mm. is a very big part of it. Mm. Advocacy seems to be something that's come up quite prominently. So people being able to understand psychedelics, understand the, the safety and the use behind psychedelics, and actually being able to speak about them in a more open environment. Mm. Um, so I see that's kind of like just the more pragmatic directions. Um, as for it going forward, I see it taking on a, a lot more of an empowerment spin, in a sense. So again, coming back to a sense of uh, like communities and connecting with information, but also uh, practical, practical uses of how to work with plant medicine mm. being actually shared and spread. And I mean, the microcosms who are doing the work already, hopefully starting to come together and more openly being able to speak about their own practices, what they're doing in their communities. Because mm. right now, I mean, it's very much in the shadows. I mean, I think you and I both know a lot of the communities in South Africa that are working and doing really good work, but they kind of are in these little pockets. Mm. So the way that I see that, as the whole world is coming together in many ways, I see that the same thing will happen on the micro level, where these mm. pockets of communities will start coming together. And that itself will weave a whole new narrative, mm. a whole new narrative. I think it's also like there are those pockets and there are those people working underground and there's a lot of that there's a lot of people working underground but then there's also kind of the average person who is not yet in any of those pockets but because of the mainstream awareness and the science and Michael Pollan's book and that you know someone who's not connected to these uh, ayahuasca groups or anything like that but they have this keen interest in mushrooms and those are the kinds of people that message us quite a lot and they say like where can I find this and I think that for, I think our role is largely to bridge those people 
into these pockets, you know, and to, to not not to make it such an exclusive thing. Because I think now it is unique uh, in the way that it's almost like everyone is starting to get on this wave. It's not just like a select few. It's not just this underground scene anymore. It's merging into something bigger. Mm-hmm. And I think that our role is to help those people step into the the world of psychedelics in a in a safe and and guided and educated way for sure yeah you know the one thing that i also see with that is you know there is this this part where you know we want to make this accessible for the entire population and i think that we happen to come from a population that has quite a lot of trauma very mm. upfront trauma about mm. south africa's past and that does require a lot of healing a lot of work and this is where plant medicine can be of a great use the problem I think, you know, and I think that you've also been experiencing this with me, is the capacity to be able to deal with all these questions. Because at the end of the day, uh, you're going to need like, literally an army <laughs> to be able to actually cope with the load of interest that is now coming in the direction of psychedelics. Mm. And this is where these established communities, I think, are really going to play a really big role. Because they've been doing the work. They are there. It's about knowing that we are stronger together. Mm. And I think that's quite an important thing, which I think is going to be key in going forward. And not one microcosm thinking that they're going to be like, you know, the lead in this, in this message, but realizing that we need, we need pockets in every province. We mm. need pockets that, and there are a lot of pockets and ones that are trying to form. I mean, the amount of people we have as well that are coming in, hello, I'm a psychology student. I am a doctor. I would like to be able to work with these medicines. We have the people that are there. It's about starting to create the network essentially to be able to start dealing with you know if there was a system in place where someone could come to the society and say hey look this is what i'm you know i'm needing this is what i'm dealing with and we say okay based on who you are what you're telling us Mm. here is a grouping close to you who can maybe help you out and you know provide uh medicine to you in the language if that makes sense yeah um that appeals to you and that can help you um and we can pass you forward. I mean, that would be something beautiful. And that's essentially what ha- has kind of started happening. Yeah. But it needs to be kind of more widespread and organized, yeah. in a sense. Yeah. You know, with everyone kind of backing that vision and that mission. Yeah. Um, and then I don't think that uh, reaching the population or making it accessible is going to be a, an issue. But it can't happen without the structure in place. Yeah. Mm. I think it's also good to point out that we don't only want to be promoting and educating about psychedelics um it's also you know it's a whole new paradigm that comes with this world of psychedelics it's not just psychedelics it's a whole different paradigm of mental health that we were talking about earlier that we wouldn't even use the word mental health and there's many different um, modalities and techniques um you know that come with it and that's something that we can legally provide <laughs> for people um so yeah i'm really looking forward to the events that we that we host um things like you know conscious dancing um just things like meditation you know there's so many different breath work um there's so many different things that that kind of you know they do have something in common with the with the psychedelic experience um you know, if you put talk therapy on one side and then you put all of this stuff on another side, it's interesting to work out like what what do these things share and what do they not share with talk therapy? Do you know what I'm saying? Mm. 
I do hear what you're saying. Um, I do think that they do. They are often more intertwined than we like to believe. Mm. So I think you know when it comes to seeing psychology on the one end of the spectrum and plant medicine on the other end of the spectrum, um, I think people tend to f you know they they go down this this route of taking plant medicine, but then not being able to integrate it becomes a problem. And as much as we would like to believe that there's uh, you know the way of understanding what you perceive, the changes that happen in your life can just happen within yourself. That's often not very practical for people. So I think that it does go hand in hand where talk therapy becomes the medicine you need to integrate mm. a psychedelic experience. Mm. And they are often more interconnected than we like to believe. Mm. I think that they can be used more harmonically. Um, for example, I think people tend to reach a block with talk therapy where they have someone that can reflect them back to themselves, but they refuse to acknowledge things within themselves. And so it becomes like ineffective in a sense yeah. whereas with plant medicine um you know they kind of shift onto to this path and uh they end up having to face a lot of things in themselves that they can't run away from any longer because yeah. it's you against you at the end of the day you know when you're sitting in a journey and you're seeing the darker sides of yourself there's no way of running away from it you have to address it yeah um, and that kind of helps unblock that passageway and then being able to go back to talk therapy to now address things with a more open standpoint that becomes very useful mm. so i think that there is this kind of dance that happens between the modalities mm. and you know when it comes to working with energy if you're struggling to shift things out and you're mentally processing it and you can't seem to understand it i mean we've learned that shifting it through the body is a better way of sometimes doing it yeah. so understanding that energy can shift out through dance through other healing modalities uh, accessing the breath being able to calm the mind down using the mind and, and, and using meditation for example um yeah i think that there's there's all these different paths to the same point and sometimes medicine that you need comes in a different form and it's about explaining that to people because at the end of the day when it comes to psychedelics and plant medicine they're not a panacea and sometimes it isn't actually what you're looking for you know in in life um it's it's not the it's not the medicine that you always need and so it's about respecting that, understanding what it can do for you and what it can't do for you, mm. and understanding how you can weave a life together mm. and incorporate it into your life in a more holistic way. Mm. And that's with all the modalities together. Mm. And that's why, you know, with a psychedelic society, it's also about bringing together all the modalities we can so that people have all the tools at their disposal. Because plant medicine is one tool. It's a tool that we're focusing on because it, it needs a lot of education and yeah. a lot of people are interested right now yeah. but it's one tool in a toolkit which we're hoping to be be able to provide to people yeah mm -hmm. so what is your history with psychedelics <laughs> and how have they affected your life okay yeah so the first time i did a psychedelic i think was my first year of university and uh I often tell people that I did it the hard way, so other people hopefully don't have to. <laughs> you know, I I was uh, offered acid by you know, um, friends of uh, you know the boyfriend at the time that I had, um, and uh, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, something had shifted in myself, and I kind of assumed you know everyone else who was with me was kind of seeing colors. Um, and patterns and I was seeing absolutely nothing so I just assumed it didn't work and um, what I didn't realize is that it was working and this was actually a psychological tool in a way and it was changing the way that I was viewing the people that I was with it was changing the way that I felt about the degree that I was studying it shifted uh, 
suddenly I started becoming disillusioned about my life and everyone in it. Mm. But I didn't know that that was acid. I didn't know that that's what it, does, what it did, you know. So I just thought that I was having a bit of a breakdown. And that kind of continued on for a couple months um, and led to, you know, I think what a lot of people call the beginning of the dark night of the soul for me, you know. Uh, and this is a difficulty when there isn't place for integration or speaking about these mm. things or knowing how to speak about it. Because suddenly, you know, I, I developed depression, if you want to call it that. Um, I stopped being able to really go to varsity and focus because I realized that I didn't know what I was doing with my life. Mm. And things kind of started slowly falling apart. And that was, the, that was my start <laughs> to psychedelics, you know. And, uh, you know, over the years, uh, I mean, I, I got drawn to things like MDMA and going out and seeing how that affected me. Um, and it started out as innocent fun in a way and just wanting to just wanting to feel good. You know, I think that uh, uh, there's a part of our lives when we often you know, us into nihilism and then hedonism and just wanting to be able to explore life and live it mm. and feel everything that I could feel. Yeah. Uh, not realizing that I was also damaging myself in the process and adding a few unnecessary traumas along the way. But I mean, it's a path that I think a lot of us have to go down mm. and come out of eventually. Mm. It's, it's part of the learning. Um, yeah, and so over time, my interest in substance in general grew. Uh, marijuana was the next teacher, I think, that came into my life. And, uh, you know... I you take acid before you, marijuana. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I think I had a weed brownie when I was in high school once, and I'd, you know, I had a puff or two of a J in my first year of university. But I, wasn't, I didn't connect with the substance in any way and have it profoundly impact me. Mm. Um, when it really started impacting me is actually when I was quite depressed in my first and second year. Um, I had a friend, I'd lost quite a lot of weight, and I had a friend come and uh, pick me up. And I went to go stay with him for a couple, couple days, I think it was. Um, and uh, he got me to smoke a bit of weed. And because I, I, you know, I hadn't been eating or sleeping or I wasn't able to focus, and what marijuana did for me is it, it helped me gain my appetite back. It helped me calm down, get my heart rate a little bit lower. Mm. So I was able to sleep. And once I was sleeping and eating, I was able to focus again. Mm. And I was able to go back to varsity. I was able to actually continue on, write my exams and get my life back in order, to be quite honest. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's like the opposite of what it does for a lot of people during un university. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know... I think uh, I'm one of the rare cases where it's actually it turned out to be for medical. Got you back in class. <laughs> yeah, it oh. got me back on track. Got me back on track, and uh, I, that's when I started, you know, developing a relationship with marijuana because I realized, okay, this can be a good, a good help for me. Mm. Um, but I also can't smoke all day every day because I realized that it, you know sometimes it's making me too tired and it started causing issues as it does mm -hmm. when you start smoking too regularly. And so I got really interested in different strains of marijuana, um, different strains. I mean, you know, some I, I started noticing uh, help me wake up opposed to go to sleep. Uh, some of them help me stay focused. Some of them help me, uh, you know, kind of get out of my mind for a little bit. Um, and so I started like writing little reviews for myself and started keeping, you know, I had a little tin that I used to carry around with like mm -hmm. my different strains labeled in my tin for different times of the day into different situations. And, uh, you know, I had friends that started taking an interest in my little reviews and the strains that I was smoking. So they would kind of like want to know where I got my strains from. And 
I, you know, I moved into an apartment at one stage that had mold growing in the ceiling. Long story short, I could no longer smoke because my chest started acting up. And so I started uh, making edibles so I could still have my, my daily marijuana and get on with my life, but in a more harmonic way for my body. And uh, I started making edibles for myself. I started making edibles for friends' birthdays. I started having friends requesting edibles from me. Eventually, I put out a menu. Um, <laughs> you know, and... Uh, so this is where my my uh, my kind of path with substance and with psychedelics started uh, diverging a little bit from a personal path to one of working with other people. Mm. And so you know my my menu went from marijuana edibles to marijuana strains with reviews to uh, mushrooms eventually because that was something that also came into my life and I started um, using and understanding. Um, and with mushrooms as well, I went down the same path of, you know, um, at that stage it was always uh, small recreational doses. It was a couple of grams, um, maybe one to two grams, I'd say, on, on a regular basis. And I started understanding as well that different strains seemed to affect me in different ways. And it made sense, you know, kind of sense of marijuana affected me in different ways and different mushroom strains would affect me in different ways. And, you know, to this day, I still have people tell me that mushrooms are a mushroom is a mushroom is a mushroom. Mm. But, I, you know, I think that... As time goes on, we start seeing the different alkaloid profiles of different mushrooms. I think it's become abundantly clear that different mushrooms do have different energies and different alkaloid yeah, profiles. Wow. I think anyone who's taken penis envy <laughs> <laughs> knows that that's not the case. It's, it's not the case. Mm. You know, I mean, over time as well, and uh, this is a completely divergent thought, but even just working with the different mushrooms um, and their kind of spirit and the energy that they carry. I mean, there's some mushrooms that we give you a low dose of. It feels closer to an MDMA, whereas some mushrooms they can give you, and it feels more like a, kind of like a, it brings up a lot of trauma in a sense. Mm. They, you know, they have slightly different flavors, let's call them. Mm. Um, and this is what people used to come to me for. This is why people were curious and they wanted to speak to me and they wanted to know what mushroom strains I had, is that was kind of what I was bringing to the table. It's kind of like this acknowledging the variance um, of substance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and so this kind of progressed for a while and I started becoming more curious and, you know, when it comes to other substances, LSD, MDMA, um, and then, yeah, that's when <laughs> my life took quite a big turn is I, I met someone. Yeah, I met someone who offered me access to quite a lot of different psychedelics and uh, you know being I think I was how old was I? I was 20 at the time and of course being very excited and a little bit out of my depth as well um, decided to you know uh, give him a bunch of money to be able to get access to quite a lot of psychedelics mm -hmm. and uh, go on an exploration of what all these you know these things do to the mind um, I was interested at that stage from everything from 2CB to 2CI I was reading up on Alexander Shulgin um, I wanted him to know about you know, San Pedro and uh, San Pedro, I mean, crystals, mescaline crystals, uh, research chems as well. I was very interested in, um, and uh, yeah, so I, I, I gained access at that stage to quite a, a large variety. Um, but the person that I did get involved in happened to also be someone that was involved in the dealing realm, <laughs> the dealing realm of psychedelics, and uh, yeah, so. Okay, so I had these menus, and, uh, you know, so the person that I met, he, he took quite an affinity for the menus that I had and for me, and he saw that this could be something bigger. He saw opportunity in it, 
And uh, so he kind of took it upon himself to start sharing my menus to environments that were not within my local vicinity, um, not my friends, but people that he kind of knew. And it started spreading beyond what I was able to kind of take on in my capacity or what that I was comfortable with. But kind of had it going, and at the time I wanted the extra cash, so you know, you kind of let things slide and continue. Um, a friend becomes a friend of a friend, becomes a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, and I remember him coming over one day with someone who, he just, he didn't feel like someone that I would normally invite into my home, mm-hmm. um, but he kind of came over. And they were having a conversation that I overheard about a bunch of pills. And uh, in conversation, I then learned that this person was one of the numbers, so from one of the gangs here in South Africa. And uh, they were speaking about a bunch of pills that were coming into Cape Town that they were going to be distributing. So this is now me starting to learn about things that were outside of my realm of, you know, kind of psychedelics and weed. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it took me a moment to kind of get a grasp of what they were actually speaking about. And when the weight of it kind of dawned on me, this is when that feeling in me to actually start wanting to do something about what was going on was ignited. And uh, they were speaking about how the polls coming in, they thought they were MDMA, they were going to tell people they were MDMA, but they weren't 100% sure, but they thought that it would be completely fine um, and that people would love them. And that seemed mm-hmm. to be their focus was just being able to sell them and that everything would be great and just put a label on them for the sake of it. And so where I kind of came in was uh, was saying that, you know, that there are ways to test these things. And their response was, well, if you know how to do it, then why don't you do it for us? You know, and at that stage, I, out of my own personal interest, I'd already been looking at test kits that you can buy um, to be able to test the difference between MDMA and MDA and so on and so forth. And so I said, okay, sure, because, you know, out of what my incentive out of it was is that if I can have some kind of say as to what is going to be getting out to, I mean, the people, I mean, some of my friends, varsity students in Cape Town um, and potentially in other parts of Africa as well and actually make sure in a way that they are safe by just doing the bare minimum of having these things tested and that would be a great thing. Not realising how deeply entrenched I would become in this process and how kind of like I was going to get sucked into a world that I was not ready for. And so that continued and I ended up becoming a tester for them and not just a, uh, a tester via test kits. I started also trying everything for them so I could advise them on dose because they had a lot of issues where you know people were coming back and um, I, uh, the, the best way to say it is essentially overdosing on some of the, you know, some of the, the wow. substances. You know, um, I, I mean, you, too often have you heard of someone going to a festival or a party and they take a, a capsule or two of something and they end up like overheating and yeah. passing out or having to go to the medic's tent. And so I spoke to them and I said, why don't you start telling people how much to take? You know, why don't you start advising people to take a half based on what you know? And so they said, fine, why don't you tell us? So I said, okay, give me one of everything first and I'll start. I mean, it was, in the beginning, it was like once a week I'd have to try something. It then started turning into once a day. And that's when my life was really just completely unmanageable. At the same time, I was still trying to get an engineering degree. I was still at varsity or trying to remain some semblance of that. And at this stage, trying to pull out became too difficult because now when you start working with the gangs, it, it doesn't really become a, a choice of what you want to do. Mm. It becomes what's necessary. 
Um, and, you know, with my own business, my own house being on the line at some stage during this whole process, uh, my flat actually got raided as well. Um, I think someone from the gangs got caught and ended up wanting to, you know, the police come with a deal where if you can tip off someone else, um, then you kind of secure your freedom in a way. Yeah. And so my flat was giving out. Luckily, I wasn't in the country at the time, but unfortunately my flatmate was, which was a horrible experience for her and all itself. Um, yeah, <laughs> really, really, really shocking. Wow. You know, and at this stage, you're so far deep into things, you don't really know how you're going to get out. After that, you know, I tried to separate myself and things didn't go that well for me. You know, I, my car would get kind of um, taken without my permission. Mm -hmm. I'd have people pitching up to my apartment. Um, I mean, the worst story that I have is, you know, I'd kind of been back in varsity and not paying attention for a while and started trying to just do what I was doing before and kind of just focus on myself and the few friends that I had. And I was still kind of like, uh, you know, selling bud here and there. Um, and just kind of getting my life a little bit back in order and trying to distance myself. And I woke up one morning to not just in my apartment, but standing next to my bed, two gang members with guns. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So how they got into the building with the security, no one knows. How they got upstairs, no one knows. How they got into my apartment, no one knows. And how they got next to my bed is a whole other story. Yeah. So, you know... Life starts becoming a lot, you know, a lot more, it becomes very different, I think, when you get to that kind of stage of the game. And that's when you realize that you're in a bit too deep and you don't know what to do. And at this stage as well, when you start trying to tell people or trying to get people to help you, mm. it's not really going to go very far. I mean, at this stage, I mean, even speaking to the police becomes a bit of an issue because you don't know what side they're on, to be honest with you. I've seen so many of the gang members go you know, be arrested one day two days later they're out you know yeah. so i mean it means absolutely nothing to think that the the legal system is going to solidly protect you because you don't know if that's true uh and i mean trying to bring family and friends into it is the last thing you want to yeah. do after you have that kind of experience i mean who's going to go and try and i mean in their right mind try and get anyone else involved um sure. yeah no so that that was i think the, the deepest and darkest points i mean the darkest points for me sometimes was you know at that stage, I mean, I remember one day going to the shops and the shop assistants knowing me by name and carrying my bags out to the car for me and me not knowing what, what was going on. And they said, don't worry, you've been paid in advance. So <laughs> they were keeping, yeah, the people at the shop were keeping tabs on me even. You know, that's when you really start realizing that you are being watched, you are being controlled and it's... it's wow. Yeah, no, so it was really, really something. I mean, I was writing stuff down, ideas of like um, what I was thinking about for my future and what I wanted to do, and I would burn it afterwards. Any ideas of trying to get out of the situation as well, I would write and I would burn it because no one could read it. I was so scared that, you know, something was going to come around and bite me in the butt. So, yeah, yeah no, it became a living nightmare. Um, and this is when my mental health also started deteriorating quite dr dr quite drastically. Yeah. You know, um, I'm consuming at this stage a lot of substance. And this is now, you know, I kind of descended to a point where I started using things outside of my normal frame of reference. So things like cocaine. Eventually I started on things like meth as well. When you are, just to put it quite frankly, trying to keep up a degree, plus trying to cre uh, keep up with the drug industry. And you have people coming to meet you at like one, two o'clock in the morning. You, there's no time to sleep. There isn't. I've been awake for like eight days on end yeah. trying to maintain some semblance of a life 
and try to maintain this other life which I had been dragged into living, you know, and uh, eventually, (laughs) (laughs) eventually I managed to get pulled out of it, Um, you know, I had ideas of how I was going to get out of it. And for me, it was trying to orientate money in such a way that I'd be able to make a quick exit. I was going to run away, essentially. I was going to run away to another country, and I was going to hopefully hide somewhere, and everything would be okay. Um, but in retrospect, I'm really glad that didn't happen, because even though I might have been able to get away, I would always be looking over my shoulder, number one. And number two, uh, I think I would just be a completely broken person, to be honest. Not that I, I wasn't after this whole experience. But at least I had support around me when things finally did turn around. Um, and so how the story goes is, you know, I stopped communicating with my family and my parents started taking note of the distancing. I'd also started losing quite a lot of weight. Uh, my mental health had like reached an all-time low um, during this period as well. Um, you know, it's, it's a difficult topic and I think it's quite triggering for a lot of people. But I also try to kill myself at some stage, you know, just not knowing what to do, how to get out of the situation, mm. feeling like I was in too deep. Um, I was also having a lot of um, emotional manipulation from the people that I was around, um, especially you know, one person in particular. Um, and uh, yeah, so, and managing, thank goodness I did survive it. I ended up in the ER. Just before I was about to die, I also took a very, very large dose of LSD. I always thought that if I'm going to die, I'd rather die by exploring the depths of my mind and going out. Swag. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, And, you know, in the end, I mean, the fact that I survived, I think, was the most traumatic part. Because I think for three months, I didn't know what was going on. I thought that I was dead. You know, and I couldn't tell anyone about this. Um, I was also, my phone was taken away from me by the person who was kind of manipulating me the most in that kind of situation. Um... Yeah, it was a really, really difficult time. Um, and so I ended up dropping out of varsity um, after I'd ended up in the hospital. And that's when my parents really started obviously taking a notice of what is going on with our daughter. Um, I just pinned it on you know, depression and anxiety and I was diagnosed with bipolar as well. And I just pinned it on that. Um, that's a whole other story in itself, the mental, the mental health side of it and how yeah. that also interleads to me actually being in, you know, interested in substance. Yeah. Um, and uh, I came to Joburg for a wedding and I was supposed to fly back two days later and on the way to the airport I got sent to court-ordered rehab and I was completely surprised I didn't know that was going to happen and it was honestly it's one of the things I'm most grateful for I think Mm. in this lifetime because it, it literally saved my life it literally saved my life you know at the time it wasn't the substance I mean when I walked in it's quite interesting on that day when they tested me I was clean <laughs> you know because I'd kind of been moving away from a lot of the substance my body was rejecting it in any case um, but yeah it's interesting because I think back to myself at that time and again like I say I think even if I managed to get away by myself I would have been so distanced and isolated from everyone that I loved and trusted I think I would have just been completely broken who knows what would have happened mm. and uh Initially, you know, at the clinic, um, I had a lot of uh, hesitation. I fought it at first. I also, no one knew what was actually going on, and I, I was coming up with every story left, right, and centre to not tell the truth. Um, I mean, I was afraid of what would happen when the truth finally came out, as mm. to what was going on, what I was actually doing with my time, and who I was involved with. Um, also just for fear that they would come looking for me and looking for my family. And uh, eventually, you know, I mean, I... 
I tried to walk out one day and because they, they weren't allowing me to use my phone and a whole lot of things were in play. My car had also then been taken in Cape Town by one of the people that I was working with. Um, uh, not, uh, of course, stolen is what I mean. Um, and so, you know, my parents said, don't worry, we're on it. They got the police involved. They went to go, they got tracker to go track down my car. They got my apartment packed up for me very quickly, got everything out. They still had no idea what was going on, but they had some semblance that it's big and that I'm in trouble and I need help. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so I was, I was, you know, I was there for one month and, um, initially, and then I opted to stay for another month and, uh, the clinic was a complete turnaround in life. It took me about a week to realize that I was in a space where people were actually trying to help me and that they could. Because at that stage, I mean, you know when you're in an environment where you're scared, you feel like there's nothing in the world that can really help you mm -hmm. and no one can protect you. And it's just, that's just where your thoughts kind of go. Mm -hmm. And then to realize that I actually have people that have no noticed that something's going on and they want to help me and they are here for me and that I am actually safe and things can be sorted out. You know, I started realizing that, you know, that my perception was completely skewed after my parents did manage to get my car back and my apartment was packed up and uh, no one tried to come look for me, for, you know, from, you know, the gangs in that whole life. Uh, no one was contacting my parents, no one was hunting me down and I started realizing, hey, actually, maybe I can get out of this, maybe, I, maybe I'm okay, maybe I actually will be fine. And in retrospect, I mean, from a gang's perspective, why would they want to contact me? They have all my stuff, they've got, you know, they've got everything they need, they've got um, the, the business, essentially, that I, that I managed to grow and kind of develop, and they have all my testing kits, they have all my, you know, so why? Why keep me around? Mm -hmm. And that was probably one of the best things that I think ever happened, because it wasn't a world that I necessarily wanted to be a part of, but it was a world that I ended up in. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it took me a lot of time to heal, deal with the trauma. I mean, d some of the trauma is like you know, sleeping behind a crack house, almost dying, you know. <laughs> you know, guns in your face, being threatened, sexual abuse. You know, the, the list goes on, yeah. to be honest with you. It's not a world that I wish upon literally anybody. And in, you know, I often, this is part of why you know, the psychedelic society exists, is to help people access these medicines in a way that is safe and not go into a world of darkness. Because mm. I mean, a lot of these substances or plant medicines are often sold and advertised by people that also deal in an industry which we don't actually want to be a part of, you know, and that's mm. just straight up the drug industry, mm. you know, and that comes with its own baggage, its own trauma, and its own set of people that are not there for your best interests, even though they advertise it at the beginning. They're trying mm. to help you at the beginning. It's not what they're really intending mm. to do. You know, so there is this importance that I think of actually making these medicines safe for people and bringing them into the light. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And that was, you know, I'm, I'm grateful because I got to see the depths of it. And this is what I really realized while I was in the clinic is seeing the depths of human behavior, of addiction, to meet people that actually were suffering with just straight up addiction. I mean, if this is initially, this is what it was my dream to kind of help is help people who were struggling with mental illness, help people like myself find their lives again, connect to some source of what they want. Some people would call it God. Um, that was kind of the vision at the beginning, you know, um, and that just got distorted so terribly. And so being able to, again, you know, I say that sometimes I feel like I had to go through it the hard way so other people don't have to. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what I hope my story kind of brings to light. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, month one was just kind of realizing, you know, the situations we put ourselves in, that we don't have, for example, a group of bottles sitting in chairs, or, you know, talking about their problems. We have a group of people. People are the problems, you know. 
it's us that kind of takes ourselves into the situations and causes issues for ourselves or our inability to deal with the situation that makes us turn towards something that we feel can help it. Mm. Um, for me, for example, at the beginning, it wasn't, uh, it was my lack of boundaries. You can call it that. Mm. You can call it a fascination without the right guidance or ability to be able to speak about it. Mm. I mean, when it comes to psychedelics as well, at this stage, at that stage, uh, it was quite a taboo subject. So you go to anyone who seems to have information on it, you know, now, and that's the importance again of why we need these open platforms. So people aren't going to the middle of nowhere to meet up with some gang member that says that they have mushrooms. That's, yeah. you know, this is the, the idea is that we actually want to start keeping people safe because my story is not a unique one. Mm. You know, I've met other people just like me who went down a very similar path, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm working with people who, uh, you know, were on a very similar path and have managed to get out and turn their lives around and are now doing the good work of trying to help other people. Mm. But let's make this not happen again so mm. people don't have to go and undo the trauma, which is, it's totally unnecessary. Mm. It's totally unnecessary. The, po- the path has been walked. Let's not have to rewalk the same path again. Mm. And so, yeah, it was a big journey of me going through that process, seeing the parts of myself that needed healing to be able to help myself out of that situation and never get myself into that situation again, learning about self-love and trust and respect. Um, and, uh, you know, the one thing I remember one of the psychologists telling me at the beginning is, um, you know, if you take uh, mushrooms again, you're going to end up on the street. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know? Do you even know what they are? Yeah. You know? And I said, you know what, I'm going to be completely open to being put off substance, but I don't, despite what the situation looked like, I don't actually think that I had a substance problem. You know, um, There was other issues that I had, but there was no substance that ever called my name that I had to really wake up every day to be able to use and desire to use every day, okay. um, which is interesting. You know, mm. and, and so by the, the second month, we stopped speaking about substance and we started speaking about mental health and undoing trauma. And that was really empowering for me because I actually got to undo and let go of a lot of the things which I'd faced and start looking at what was interesting me in the future. And it really, you know, it gave me time. It was the first time that I managed to sit down with a piece of paper and write and not have to burn it or hide it Mm. and just write down what it is that I felt and what it is that was interesting me in this Mm. whole process. And this is where I think the Mishka that you know today was born, was during these two months, you know, and I, I wrote down... Um, why? what drew me there in the first place mm. and what still remains and after those two months you know and this is I mean I had my parents fighting me were, you know it, it was really just uh, traumatic all round for everybody I mean eventually the truth kind of came out and I explained everything that happened to my parents and that was tears and fights and you know, the works you know um, how could I do this and you, yeah you're fighting a lot of battles you're fighting Everything from religion to trust to dealing with the abuse that I went through, which is difficult to even listen to, just is a whole lot. There's a whole lot there. Um, and through, you know, through those conversations, there was still something in me which kind of knew that something was still there in psychedelics. Mm. Something was still there, and I knew that. And so... You know, by the end of my time there, the same psychologist that told me that I'm going to take mushrooms and end up on the streets, <laughs> she told me that she went for a talk on LSD and the potential of LSD therapy. And she actually, we had a conversation about it, you know, and that was quite a turning point for me, is uh, 
the person that I was almost kind of speaking to and arguing against had now almost said to me, maybe you're not wrong. You know, maybe your path hasn't been right, but maybe you are not wrong. And so, yeah, so that was, I came out of that and I had to pick up a semblance of a life. I moved cities, I moved back to my parents and, you know, which was also a blessing in disguise. I managed to reconnect with them in a much deeper way and come out of this, uh, regain trust. It took a long time um, and let them understand, you know, what it is that I see um, in this, this whole world with they didn't that they didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, so it's kind of been a journey from there. Um, this is again when I started trying to reach out to people who had some communities, but better ones this time. Mm. Ones, plant communities, medicine communities, mm. people that actually had answers for me and that could help me um, because I could see where my healing was lying. You know, I'd, I'd done a lot through, for example, talk therapy. Um, I was also tired of the antidepressants that I'd been on for years. Um, I was on antidepressants, mood stabilizers. I'd managed to, over the time, um, get myself off benzodiazepines. Um, and uh, so I started being interested. I started, I started studying plant medicine, understanding pharmacology, um, being interested in psychology. Um, I was blessed enough to go and stay with a really dear friend of mine now, uh, who's a mushroom grower. And I stayed with him for a bit, and while I was there, I met a researcher who studies ayahuasca in the Amazon. And uh, it was the first time that I felt like I could have a conversation about what I was really interested in, and I mm. felt safe, mm. you know. And uh, that was a really, really, really big turning point for me. While, while I was there, um, I also I did a, a mushroom ceremony with them. And it was the first time that I'd taken mushrooms in that kind of respectful manner. And just, you know, it, sometimes you have to be completely broken in a sense to be able to really accept true healing and just be completely open. You know, I'd always gone with mushrooms and I said, okay, yeah, I want to work on this thing and I want to do this and I want to do that. This time I was like, teach me. I am your child. I'm your, I'm here. I am surrendering. I'm open. Guide me. Help me. Show me. Just take me, you know? <laughs> And uh, I got taken <laughs> on a journey that I'll never forget. You know, that was the first time I, I what you would call bro broke through on mushrooms. You know, it wasn't just fractals and pens and ideas and semblances and visions. It was breaking through into a whole new realm. And I got greeted by uh, a group of entities. You know, this is the other side of my story, which I think is quite important is my kind of work in the more shamanic realms and how I was born into the shamanic realms. And um, I was taken and I was, in, you know, this is now, you know, kind of on the other side. And uh, there's a group of entities there that said, welcome, you know, and I was like, holy shit, what's going on? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's as real as this. It's as real as you and I sitting here and having a conversation, except there's a whole lot of different beings and they all look a little bit different. And, um, and they said, the one thing that, I, you know, the reason why they can now communicate with me is because the things that are balanced in me is power and fear. You know, I've been through such trials when it comes to facing my own fear mm. that um, if they try to communicate with me, I'm not going to freak out mm. and I'm not also striving for power. So, you know, when they, they use the analogy of a Petri dish, and for anyone that's grown mushrooms, they would like really understand this. But if you take a culture in a petri dish and put it into a new one, if it's like almost power dominating, it's just gonna eat over everything else, you know. Um, so it's kind of like mm. this balance in the environment that it needs to be able to maintain. Mm. Um, 
and uh, so just power and fear is essentially what they said is finally balanced, so they can actually have a conversation with me. Mm. And uh, they showed me a lot. They they showed me the human race in a petri dish and what a toxic culture is and how a toxic culture can be saved. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, <laughs> that just to say the least was a life changing, life changing moment. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so. Yeah. So I came out of that completely changed, and uh, you know they they'd given me quite a lot of information uh, in terms of kind of like a little bit on the path ahead. But just showing who I am, it also just broke my sense of reality, mm, to be honest. Mm. <laughs> and I think this is where a lot of the power in psychedelics really do lie. And we know this, you know, intrinsically from, uh, even from small doses, that it allows you to step outside of yourself and get a whole new perspective. Uh, this mm. allowed me to enter what I'd like to call a whole new reality. And mm. that was a perspective which I wasn't sure that I was ready for yet, but it came anyway. And uh, it was remarkably profound. It was remarkably profound. Um, and uh, this is where my, you know, a lot of the, the confidence, I think, for starting the Psychedelic Society actually also arose from was, the, the, like, I mean, after you have an experience like that and it ends up being so profound and so healing in a sense, you kind of want to be able to share this with the world. And so mm. getting back after, you know, my stay there and, uh, and another thing with the, with the researcher that was there for that ceremony, um, he spoke to me about consciousness and my interest in consciousness because I think at the core that is what I'm interested in is how the mind works, how it can be molded, how it can be shifted, how it can change and how it can grow and how our own belief systems, another thing which I learned from the clinic, um, morph the reality which we are in, you know, and how as we kind of change the way that we interact with ourselves and our belief systems and um, who we think we are and the labels that we choose to associate with, we change the reality that we live on a daily mm. basis. Um, and uh, yeah, so this kind of confidence grew that you know maybe this community can be can be created even though it's not completely there, and uh, maybe I should just start something, and maybe then the people will come because this is what I want to focus on. This is what I want to do, and there aren't any jobs available for me right now. Um, you know, I mean, like I had I managed to you know graduate with an undergrad. I dropped out of my honors year, but I do have a you know an undergrad. Um, and the one thing that you know this researcher kind of spoke to me about is if you are interested in psychedelics and consciousness, it's, it's such a broad topic and there's so many directions. Pick the direction you're interested in because at that stage I was talking about botany. I was talking, you know, I was going off mm. in all directions mm. at that stage. You know, there isn't like a, again, you know, like this guided path as to how to interact um, with this kind of sphere of existence. And uh, so I realized I was more interested in people. And so I registered to do a psychology degree, which I managed to do through UNISA. Um, and uh, that was really powerful in being able to understand how everything comes together in terms of understanding the system which we come from, which is maybe talk therapy and psychology, and the system that we'd like to move into, which is that of psychedelics and like psychedelic expansion or plant medicine expansion, um, and understanding the bridge that needs to happen. Because as, as much as one section is useful, um, like for example, the narrative of how to, you know, uh, heal or expand your consciousness using plant medicines, if it's not in a language that people understand, it's not useful. There's something that I often say about our framings of reality is all framings are correct, not all of them are useful. Mm. So it's about making things translatable. Mm. It's making things. Um, 
make sense for someone and making things practical so that they can actually change lives and not just be something that we know theoretically. Yeah. And I think that that's also, that highlights the importance of people finding the right um, facilitator or the right community to work with because you know there are some communities that use a completely different language because these experiences that you have in the psychedelic experience are so um, you know different to normal waking consciousness experiences it is like you need a whole new kind of language than you were used to before and different communities use different languages you know there's like a kind of very new age way of looking and but that can really resonate with some people but then there's like you know there's other there's different ways and there's different people who have a whole um language is just one aspect of it but have a whole vibe to them and if some people you know like if you took my mom and you sent it to one of the new age things you know she'd run away (laughs) it just wouldn't work but then there are other people who would actually be able to connect they would be able to connect with her and actually show her the truth of you know what this experience is so i think you know the when it comes to translating i think receptivity is a really big part of it and so when it comes to speaking about um kind of like our experience whether you use the language of science or neuroscience or spirituality or it's buddhist jargon that suits you um, or all of them for some or people, all of yeah. them yeah i mean sometimes when i'm trying to explain something one of the things that I've noticed myself doing a lot is using the chakra system because that's sometimes it's the quickest and easiest way for me to explain it, even though it may not be the language that you understand. Yeah. If you can just accept this framing for a moment, I can try and give you an explanation of something that might be useful for mm-hmm. you. Um, and so sometimes we, yeah, it, it becomes interesting because you know, I, I listen to people and uh, they seem to have this mashup of different cultures and uh, ideologies and bits of language from all over. At the end of the day, you know, when you're looking at, uh, you know, truth or an idea that's kind of in the ether, we have to use the symbols that we've got to try and communicate with each other. Mm. And sometimes not every language has all the symbols that we need to be able to describe it. Mm. I mean, just by nature, language itself is so limited. So we're never going to have the full mm. s- symbols mm. to be able to explain this multifaceted, you know, they always use the analogy of like um, people with blindfolds on holding an elephant and each person t- touches their part of the elephant and tries to tell the others what the elephant is. And you know, one person's feeling the tail, and one person's feeling the body, one person's feeling the trunk and yeah. each of them just by holding that part only know a single part, even though that for them is the whole thing. Mm. You know, so I think there is this element of bringing together all these different viewpoints and languages to be able to, you know, explain and make things usable for people. Yeah. And, And that's also something, you know, that highlights the importance of community and finding people like, for example, um, for myself, when I first started taking psychedelics, I was taking them with friends and we were having these recreational experiences, but the way I describe it is kind of like I got pulled into the void, you know, and I started having these like very challenging experiences, but I didn't have anyone around me who I felt I could speak to about them. So they kind of just got like boxed up in the back of my brain, you know, with no words, no expression to to help ground them. And then when I started to find um, communities of people who who are interested in psychedelics and who actually have you know, at least a start on the language to speak about this stuff and talk about trauma and, you know, the whole, the whole thing. It actually helped me 
just having the language learning from these people helped me to integrate and digest these experiences that I kind of just were like oh what the fuck was that <laughs> just like put it away you know mm-hmm. so it's like really important to find um to you know if you are alone if you're having these deep experiences it is important to find people and speak about it you know with people who uh you feel safe speaking about it too mm-hmm. um because otherwise you know it it does remain unintegrated and a lot of people have traumatic experiences with psychedelics and they don't even realize that they were traumatic you know because they just don't speak about it it's a weird experience it makes them uncomfortable so they just don't speak about it yeah this is yeah this is the other thing which has become quite a key part in terms of the work that I do is the the steps that are that one can take to actually prepare yourself because as much as the experience is going to be incredibly profound leading up to that experience is just as important as the experience itself mm. and the integration afterwards mm. And so, you know, just uh, I'll wind it, I'm going to wind it back a little bit mm. in terms of back to just about my story and the, the progression that I went through. Because I feel like the progression that I went through is a path that many people are currently walking. And so the ways that I can help is just by explaining it and actually making it a bit more harmonic for people. And, uh, you know, there's this, this progression that I went and starting to realize that the labels that I had in terms of mental illness, and this is something that we've spoken about quite in-depthly, uh, became quite limiting for me um, and they were no longer serving me um, you know I think a lot of the time uh, you know using bipolar depression is uh, it becomes quite useful to understand yourself and actually as an excuse to be honest um, to get out of doing a lot of things or to explain reckless behaviors but when that becomes more of a burden to you than a blessing in terms of understanding yourself there has to be this point where you want to change and I reached that point at some stage where I was like this is not going to happen I'm not going to be on this medication till I die I don't think that's okay um, I don't think it's necessary and so I went on a journey of actually finding alternatives through plant medicine um, through African medicine um, through Ayurvedic medicine through diet changes uh, to actually help wean myself off um, the medication, and I did so successfully. I managed to weed myself off everything over time. Um, pro tip for people that are trying to get off uh, antidepressants is ashwagandha and skeletium. I work with it quite often. It's part of the range that I have as well, um, which also manifested out of my process of getting off as I managed to formulate my own herbal range. Um, and uh, once I'd kind of gotten past that stage of getting myself stable and owning that much in myself, that was a much like more grounded place for me to be able to then start actually doing the work. It's almost like you have to show up first before, you know, I mean, psychedelics can help you open up to a whole new world of understanding. But if you are not present to be able to do the work and you're not willing to do the work, mm. it isn't going to go very well. Mm. <laughs> you know, and that's a very, I say that with a pinch of salt, but that's, you know, I've seen it all too often where, you know, I mean, it, it, it's the same thing that happened with me in my first LSD experiences. You get disillusioned about your entire life. But if you aren't willing to make a change, then all that's going to happen is you're going to be stuck in the same life that you had and you're going yeah. to be miserable. Yeah. And that's never, gonna, that's never a good thing. Yeah. You know, If you don't actually want to change, then all you're going to be left with is the guilt of not changing. And that's yeah. just going to... Yeah. Mm. You know, so there is this element of being able to show up for it and making sure that you are ready and educated and like knowing what it's going to entail to actually mm. go down this path of changing and healing and shifting and morphing and undoing belief systems and 
being strong mm. and being strong is difficult because I mean it's the same thing you know when you're forging iron you put it in the fire and yeah so yeah. it is a process and yeah. you know I mean another aspect is you know if you are going into quite a deep journey and uh, you, you do happen to have what is called an ego death and too often as well like, you know people are like oh I've had an ego death and it's when they've taken two grams of mushrooms and they've kind of been you know disillusioned about certain parts of their lives but what they fail to then understand is sometimes an ego death feels like a complete death, you know? And I mean, I've been with people that are like literally screaming that they're dying. I mean, I've been through the experience as well where I was like, okay, I'm going to die now. I'm physically going to die and they're going to be left with a dead body tomorrow. And what I didn't realize is that when a part of you dies, it, tend to, it tends to feel like the whole thing. And in a sense, it is a whole, it's a rebirth, you know, mm -hmm. in, the, in the shamanic communities and the ayahuasca communities, rebirth is the language that they choose to use. Um, some people call it a complete repatterning because um, that's the way that makes sense for them. Um, and uh, that can be quite a scary thing because that means the shedding of all your belief systems, all the things that you thought that you were, to be able to be reborn into something new. But the process can be very difficult. And a simple tool like knowing how to ground yourself, knowing how to breathe, focusing on the breath, being able to meditate. I'm always grateful for, I went for a Vipassana meditation, which I know that you've been for as well, a meditation retreat. And that stood me in such good stead, you know, further down the line when I started continuing on with my journey process and doing more ceremonies. Um, and being able to just find your center as this mm. is going on around you, I think is a very, very important tool on that path. And again, this ties back into the psychedelic society and why it's not just speaking about psychedelics, why it's got to be this whole holistic approach because without all these tools in hand, you can still go ahead, but it might not be as effective or as safe or as, mm. you know, sometimes a little semblance of sense in an experience can be very powerful. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a whole, that's a whole other conversation in itself. But just sometimes the framing that can take place within a ceremony and what's actually happening to mm. you can be very powerful. Yeah, I think it requires a lot of courage to to work with psychedelics, you know, and for it to be the right time, you have to be, you have to be willing to face whatever comes up. That's a decision that you have to make before you go into a ceremony or a journey or something. You know, it's like, I don't know what's going to come up, but I'm going to be here for it. You have to make that decision because you don't know what's going to come up. And like you said, it's when you, when you run away from what's coming up, that's when it starts to get really difficult you know that's when it starts to <laughs> fuck you up a little bit you know um yeah okay well I, I wanted to ask like okay for somebody who's considering taking a psychedelic um but they're not sure if it's right for them. I know that before I did it for the first time, there were so many fears. It was a big fear was like, am I going to go crazy? Am I the right person for this? Am I one of those people who are just not meant for it? So how, what advice would you give someone? How can they know whether or not they're ready? Is it, is it the right time for them to do this or not? So I think one of the big things you really have to ask yourself, if this is something that you're interested in is, Okay, I always say that if the call is there, it's there. You know, I don't try to discount people that have the call. And you know, I've had people come up to me and say, you know, I don't know what it is about this, but I'm interested. And follow that call, because I think everything that we're attracted to in life, whether it's people, whether it's things, whether it's relationships, I think that attraction, there's a lot that we can learn from it. 
Because what in me is being attracted to this? What part of me is looking for change? What part of me is looking for growth or expansion mm. or learning? And I think that's a very important part of the process is actually trying to figure that out. And once you can kind of identify that in yourself, the, the next question that you kind of have to ask yourself is, am I willing to change? So a, an example is someone coming who is, um, yeah, some people come just because they want to expand, some people are curious, some people understand the, inter, the interleaving of consciousness and the expansion of consciousness. Um, as a lot of people, and this is what I'm speaking about in terms of the majority of queries, I think, that are coming through, and what um, the potential co commercialization of psychedelics is looking at, is people looking to heal and, or looking to change their lives for, the, for a positive, positive you know, effect. Um, and um, if you're tired of the work that you're you're doing, um, you're in an unhappy relationship. If you are suffering from depression or burnout or whatever your situation is, are you really willing to change? Are you really willing to change it? Are you really willing to do the work that it might require mm. to change your life? Um, if you're someone struggling with addiction, uh, how badly do you really want it? You know, a lot of people say, yeah, I just want to get out of the situation. But do you really? Are you really willing to let go of your comforts, of your safeties, of your excuses, to put it quite bluntly? Mm. Um, and I think that's something, if we really ask ourselves that honestly, truly, by, and by ourselves, we often do have the answer. And when you can come to a solid yes, and you want it enough, I think this is definitely something that you can come towards. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's not always the case. Some people are looking uh, for microdosing, for efficiency. And it, it doesn't always have to be such a big, uh, dramatic shift. It doesn't mm. always have to be going in for ceremony. Mm. It can also be something that's eased in. Um, people looking for... I, I always say that, you know, microdosing is a good entry point when you're still considering... Um, working your way up to a ceremony but if you are looking at working with psychedelics in a more profound way um, those are the things that you have to ask yourself and I mean you know, even even with even with uh, with microdosing I mean the amount of people that start having uh, different preferences when it comes to diet you know over time they've been microdosing for a couple of months and suddenly you know, they're just not really into meat anymore <laughs> or you know, yeah. it's just, it's too common. And then suddenly, you know, family meals are not really the same because you don't really want to eat the cake or whatever, you know, whatever sure. it is. You, you have to be, if you, you're going to be working with things that are going to fundamentally change little parts of you, you have to be willing to accept those changes mm. and accept yourself on the process, mm. you know. And, I mean, it's generally for the better, you know. I don't like to put a blanket statement on things, but... I think it's, it's for the better, but it, it can be challenging especially if you're changing and you're in an environment or like you say you know your family's not changing that can be very challenging to manage um yeah like even for me when when i think for a lot of people they start to go through a kind of healing process transformational process where um they start to realize that a lot of the stuff they were doing and the people they were spending time with just is no longer really resonating with who they were mm. and that is quite a challenging space to be in because 
it it's not like you realize that and then immediately it's like oh but here the other people here my people are and here are the things that i want you know it's like you kind of have to go through this you know it is like a void like a limbo period where all you know is okay my life as it was is no longer working but then you got to move into the new thing and you got to you got to be able to kind of hold the space for that you know that discomfort that comes with not actually knowing what's next and what the fuck is going on <laughs> you know yeah i think you know it's also quite important uh, and i know that this is it's it's quite a contrast from what i just said but also um you know there's also this aspect that i think people it, there is this little bit of an ominous tone that I think starts developing when people are like, and it's it's with with the intention of kind of love and support and making sure people are safe, so they know what they're getting themselves involved in. But you know, some people are so scared because they're like, oh my god, what if I don't love my spouse anymore? What if yeah. this happens? What if that happens? And so they get really pushed away by you know exactly what I just said five minutes ago. Um, and it's it's also about trying to reinforce the idea that it isn't just going to shatter every single part of you, mm. you know. That if your relationship was built on love and trust and respect, it's mm. not just going to shatter and disappear forever. Mm. You know, you get to keep those things. Yeah. You do. And what's but real remains. What's real remains, yeah. you know. And, but if you are with your partner because you liked the way that they looked and they had the right, you know, kind of paperwork and and that's what it was founded on, then expect some of the things to be challenged. Yeah. Expect some of that to come up yeah. and expect yourself to go through a process of discovering why you actually do love them, you know. Um, but yeah, I think that often people are like, but what if I'm not ready? And I meet some of the most beautiful, grounded human beings that are terrified. And I can kind of understand mm. why. Um, but it's also just taking that, yeah, it's, it's a balance. It is a balance. It's a balance of caution and also knowing that that you know, one of the biggest lessons I think that a lot of us learn through psychedelics is that we're actually okay, <laughs> you know, and that there's a lot of us which is good and true and beautiful and passionate and creative and a force of good in this world. And this actually helps reconnect to those parts. And that's another part of the journey, which I think is really important. Mm. Okay, so you spoke about microdosing. Mm. So something I've wondered myself is when is it time to microdose versus when is it time to go into a full-blown journey? Mm. I suppose when it comes to microdosing and doing a big journey, um, it's, it's really about the intention. And this is something that's been coming up quite a bit is the art of setting intention. You know, the analogy that I often try to use just on the topic of intention setting is, you know, if you want to have a mango tree, you should probably start planting mango seeds. You want a peach tree, you should probably start planting peach seeds. So being the idea is being more specific about the seeds that we're planting to know what's going to emerge. Of mm. course, we never know what that mango tree is exactly going to look like, how many leaves it's going to have, what color everything's going to be. We that Those aspects, we don't know. But if, you, if you're looking for a certain type of trees, it's about time we start actually thinking about what seeds to start obtaining and planting and what energy is needed to start you know, cultivating um, what resources are required for that. And uh, I think this, you know, it's very important when you're going into ceremony to understand the art of intention setting. And it's very important when you're considering what to do, whether it's microdosing or ceremony, to understand what the intention is. And I think that is where everything is kind of driven from. So, you know, uh, I think the best way to go about it is just talking about examples. Um, and if it's something, if you are perhaps hesitant towards 
um, a big change and you don't have perhaps the space in your life to be able to integrate that big change, mm. then microdosing might be something for you. If you're looking for um, uh, loosening your belief systems on a more daily basis, perhaps being able to reframe what you're looking at, um, if you're an artist with uh, on kind of like ongoing subtle, you know, creative block, for example. Um, if you're interested in uh, pattern recognition, you're in mm -hmm. finance, for example, um, and you'd like to be able to look at your your paperwork with uh, new eyes in a way, um, then sure, microdosing might be something for you. You know, you're trying to just. Uh, gently shake out some of the behavior patterns which you've been stuck in for a while then that added neuroplasticity on a daily basis or uh, technically once every three days that's the kind of protocol which I recommend that's from James Fadiman and I think that his work is quite good um, I think that is kind of a, a more gentle long-term approach uh, if there's quite drastic change you need in your life uh, foundational changes, uprooting of old belief systems. Uh, that's when I would start looking at higher doses and ceremony work. Mm. When there's when there's big work that needs to be done, when there's a lot that needs to shift all at once. When it comes to ceremony work, though, you often and you know you hear this a lot in the plant communities. You're given what you needed, not what you want, and uh, you have to be open to everything that comes with that. And you know, often the like the journey you go in for. I mean. I've seen people go in for wanting to sort out things for business and they come out of the experience crying that they miss their family. You know, you, you don't often get what you want mm. out of it. Mm. And uh, you have to just kind of be completely open to what's going to emerge when you're going in for those big journeys. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, I think that kind of explains mm. yeah, the, mm. the difference between microdosing the one thing that when it comes to microdosing as well, which I often try to explain to people that are interested, is it is not a panacea. It's not something that you, it's not just like an antidepressant that's going to enter your body and do a certain thing and that's it. Yeah. You have to do the work as well. So if it can provide you with the neuroplasticity and you know kind of the drive to be able to make slightly different choices, but you still have to make those other choices. Mm -hmm. You still have to incrementally change your behavior patterns and instill new habits, it can make it easier for you to do that, sure, but it can't do the work for you, it can't force you to do anything. Mm. You know, and that's something always to keep into consideration when you are going forward. And I think that's when you can really, if you can learn to harness that, that's where you can really find the power in microdosing. You know, if you're um, journaling every day, or you're conscious about what you're doing during your day, if you're consciously trying to instill new things in yourself, uh, trying to make good decisions in terms of your environment, your diet, or your work, or whatever it might be. Yeah. You know, that's that, yeah, it, it all goes hand in hand. Yeah. Mm. So, I would also like to offer a pretty unscientific <laughs> bit of advice, um, just in general, for whether to attend a ceremony or, or microdose, is just what do you feel called to? You know, like intuitively, what is really uh, spiking your interest? Because chances are you probably kind of know whether you should microdose or um, go on a full-blown journey and if you don't do a little bit of investigation but something inside of you will tell you this is what you need right now you know yeah I think what you're saying is also really important so something that has been quite a topic um, of late is uh, starting to trust intuition mm. you know and I think uh, 
uh, intuition it's it's quite an interesting one i think that as a society we tend to be stuck in our mind mm. quite often and we try to logic things out and this uh, element of self-doubt that seems to have creeped into every single one of us yeah. you know and uh yeah it's i think this path really is one of starting to learn to trust yourself a lot more yeah. as well and listen to that voice you know and the the best way um, i've heard it described to me actually is by a friend of mine that often says where in your body are you feeling it so if you say something and you have a, a calling to do something um is it fear holding you back or is it intuition holding you mm. back is there a knowingness that this is not for you or are you scared of it yes yeah. and i think the knowingness the the felt sensation of the knowingness is just it's much calmer you know yeah it's just like no <laughs> that's not a good idea it's not like yeah. <laughs> like holding on like i don't want to change i'm scared yeah. no you yeah know you. so you gotta yeah it's about learning to discern i think yeah yeah what's really holding you back or what's actually driving you yeah, yeah and where that's coming from in you mm. for somebody who's on medication like antidepressants is this a path for them and if so what's the best way to approach it how do they wean themselves off of the medication okay so when it comes to psychedelics and people that are on um, medication for mental health and specifically for depression uh, as you know i mean mushrooms are being studied at the moment for their ability to help treat depression what's quite interesting is um, beyond the pharmacological action um, of which kind of psilocybin acts in the brain um, they've done research into how the true mode of action is the psychological experience that's had from mushrooms and not just the physiological reaction mm. it does go yeah it does go hand in hand with the actual experience that the user has um there isn't much unfortunate uh research when it comes to taking psychedelics on antidepressant medication but i do know you know i forget the site now um, there has been, I think it might have been through James Fadiman as well, who's um, put out quite a bit, but I, I, I might be completely wrong there. Um, I mean, there's a lot of user reports for people that have been on chronic medication for years, hundreds of user reports, and all of them seem to have no adverse reaction to being able to take them together. And in my own personal capacity, I found them quite useful. Although saying this as well is often people that are coming towards psychedelics are often on the path of trying to get off their medication. And this is where I think that psychedelics can really come in handy. I mean, you have everything from iboga, which can cause a complete like reset, essentially, when you're trying to wean off uh, opioids or you know, kind of uh, you're dealing with uh, deep addiction problems. Um, psilocybin in itself uh, has been very useful for people trying to wean off specifically antidepressant medication. Uh, and this is where you know we tend to forget about the other plants that are available to us, not just the psychedelics. Uh, something that I can't speak enough about is ashwagandha um, and scolitium, which is something that is South African um, that provides, you know, kind of stimulates serotonin in the brain um, and acts as a natural form of antidepressant. And ashwagandha is something that balances cortisol, which is often something we completely overlook. And cortisol is a stress hormone. It essentially wreaks havoc in the body and creates a whole lot of imbalances from how we deal with stress, how we deal with the emotions, how we deal with... Uh, uh, social interactions, how we, how well we sleep, uh, you know, if your heart rate is constantly too high, uh, appetite is generally quite low. I mean, it just affects a whole, a whole spectrum. So the first thing that I often recommend people doing is trying to get their cortisol levels under control. 
and from there being able to start making more sounder decisions and acting in a more responsible way. So if you are trying to get over antidepressant medication, that is, um, you know, the, the path that I see is sometimes finding herbal alternatives to kind of move off of to help that withdrawal process a bit better. Um, and I definitely would advise speaking to a medical professional about it as well, uh, just because uh, going cold turkey isn't always the, the best for mm. the body or for the mind. Mm. And so doing it safely is also very important. Um, the, the one thing which, you know, when it comes to mental health, and this is the, you know, the, the depths of where my opinion kind of stands, stands on it, and it's not a very popular opinion, but uh, I, I don't believe in mental illness, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's, a very, uh, it's a very harsh statement, and I'm not discounting the experience of mental illness, but I don't think that it is a permanent state of being that needs to be labelled as such. Mm. It is just the experience that we as a collective are having right now and choose to label. But I feel like there are better ways of being able to frame what's happening that are more useful to people. So people that have uh, you know, uh, chronic depression, let's say, um, too often uh, they come and they don't know how to get out of it. They don't know what they're doing. They, they don't know where to look. They don't know what's wrong with them. Uh, you know, in life, when we have one problem, we can kind of see what that problem is. And it's kind of easy to see all the variables that are kind of floating around this problem. And we can kind of work to sort that problem out. When there's two problems, it becomes a little bit more challenging because now you've got this kind of crossing over of variables between these two problems in your life. Um, and so it becomes a bit more tricky to manage them. When you've got five problems, mm -hmm. you know, that are kind of, concurrently happening mm. uh, it becomes even more challenging because you don't really know where to move how to change things and that's when i feel depression starts setting in is when there isn't a sense of semblance of what's going on i mean even when it comes to past traumas when you've got like five different elements that are playing into your behavior patterns today uh, it's very difficult to make sense of where, for example, your social anxiety is really stemming from, where your aversion to men or respecting women in the workplace, where that really stems from when, you know, you've got all these factors kind of playing and weaving in together. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to start uh, providing empowerment to people is number one. Um, and this is something that you and I have spoken about quite a bit and understanding that there are other framings of being able to look at your own mental health that might be more useful for you, um, opposed to, I'm depressed, I'm bipolar, that's it, that's how I'm going to be for the rest of my life. But maybe starting to look at it in terms of what are the belief systems that I have, what are the traumas that I have, mm. what are the parts that I can actually look at that I can start working on one by one mm. to actually start helping me, if you want to call it, heal, or shift into a reality which is more preferable. Yeah. You know, and... This is kind of like the highest expression of what I can be in this world. Yeah. And perhaps that doesn't look like someone that's on medication for the rest of my life. Yeah. You know? I think also we have been given this framework by our mental health paradigm that these are conditions that either we're born with or, you know, we're basically stuck with. And I'm not a mental health professional, so like none of this is, you know, you, you can't say, but, but for me, in my experience, I've learned that what I call mental illness, anxiety and depression in my life 
have been signals you know it's literally like you put your finger on the stove and you get burnt so you take your finger off the stove and it's like those happening on different levels and like you said can be challenging to work out when there's many different causes or if the causes are unseen or if they're deeply uh, unconscious you know like deep trauma from childhood those kinds of things yeah and I just think that's that's you know that's an important reframing for people to understand maybe not all the time but it's like learning to work with your mental illness the problem that this discomfort learning to, to work with it and listen to it like ask what it's trying to show you rather than just trying to get rid of it you know definitely yeah. definitely yeah that's one thing which i think was really empowering for me starting to see the multitude of different fl like framings that i had at my disposal suddenly when yeah. i just let go of the medical model and started realizing I mean, just a simple one with bipolar. I mean, looking at it as a, a tool for learning, if you look at it in terms of vibrational states and how, you know, you get put into this like state of expansion where you're kind of like um, in the state of, you know, um, quick learning, your barriers are down to trying new things. So you're trying a whole lot of new things, you're gathering a whole lot of information as a human being. But of course, with every expansion comes the contraction. That's just mm. like the cycles of life. So as you cycle down, you enter this period of being able to integrate. You, um, you're less likely to want to try new things. You're also more likely to introspect and actually start reflecting back on what's actually happened. Now often what happens is we enter the state of high learning, we drop our barriers, we go out of control completely, and then we drop back down and we have the sense of guilt and regret and, you know, and that's kind of, our feelings towards what's happening is often more dangerous than what's actually happening mm. in, you know, in reality. Mm. So I mean, if, if we kind of understood this natural cycle in our lives, then we could start actually being able to harness it and control it. Mm. So, you know, when I'm in, uh, kind of elevated state let's say uh i know that i'm going to be best at being able to outwardly perform being able to learn new things being able to um, socialize expand connect grow learn and when i'm in a contracted kind of space of learning um you know or introspecting rather then not pushing myself to be mm. outwardly expressing because mm. that's just going to make it even harder for me to integrate what i need to integrate you know, and, and I see this in so many different ways. I mean, even with um, women now starting to look at the menstrual cycle and how, you know, kind of, you know, they say PMS is please make space. Mm. You know, it's a time for you to be able to be with yourself and reflect and plant seeds and grow for the next, mm. you know, kind of uh, cycle ahead. And, you know, as your cycle continues and you enter your ovulation phase and you're suddenly super bubbly, you're wanting to connect and grow and expand and reap the, you know, the fruits of the seeds that you've planted. So there are all these rhythms which we can start taking note of and mm. kind of working with. And this is just one framing of many framings which are available to reframe what's actually happening with mental illness mm. um, and these cycles that you know kind of go on in multi multiple multiple parts of our lives yeah there's there's really really i mean that's like it's a whole conversation just in terms yeah. of the possibilities of how you can relook at what's going on and how you can even let go of what's you know what's going on sometimes yeah. okay so there's a lot of people who take psychedelics in a recreational setting, like a party, and they have very challenging, sometimes traumatic experiences. What advice do you have for, I would actually like to know what you would have said to me 
in those moments when I was having that experience, I, I know it's difficult because you don't know the specifics about it, but you know, what advice would you give to someone who's having a challenging experience? They don't feel like they have a safe space or people to talk to around them. So what advice would you give to that person there and then? And what advice would you give to that person, let's say weeks or months later to help them integrate that experience? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenging question. And I can say because I've personally had this experience as well. And I've personally experienced other people having this experience as well. And each person is quite different in terms of what it is that they need. Mm. And so, I mean, in my situation, it was finding people that would physically just be there for me to make me feel a sense of safety um, and knowing that it was okay that I couldn't drive home um, and that it was fine I could leave the next day and that's all I needed to be able to go on my journey mm. internally alone and continue mm. on with what I needed but that might be very different for a lot of people I mean I've had someone that's completely forgotten their name who they were where they were at you know and uh, just being able to tell, you know, speak to them about, you know, what is the importance of your name right now? You know, it, it's, it's how I say it's a very difficult question because mm. I think that each individual is quite different. And mm. this is why I think safe spaces and people that actually know what they're talking about when it comes to psychedelics are important to have around, mm. you know, because, uh, I mean, how to navigate someone who is trapped in their own mind and you know will inevitably inevitably come out but whether they come out with trauma or with growth is you know kind of up to the the environment that they place themselves yeah. in um and uh you know i'm not sure what your your experience was altogether but i think uh you know one way of being able to approach someone that is having a difficult time is um one just being able to create a sense some kind of semblance of um, safety and knowing that mm. this too shall be able to pass mm. and once you can kind of get their physiological state into a place where they feel a little bit like you know calmer and okay and that this is going to pass and this is fine and this experience is valid and that also knowing that it's okay to have this experience you know that um too often i think people feel like they've you know they've messed up mm. you know and now they're a burden and they're wrong and and i mean they're in it anyway it's why don't you turn it into something positive and use this time constructively? Even though it isn't what you wanted, it's here now, let's make the best of it. Mm. I think that's, you know, a very good way to kind of go about it. I'm not sure, what would, I think a better question is, what would you say to yourself? <laughs> mm. Well, I would just say to people that before you take a psychedelic with somebody or with a group of people, make sure that there's at least one person who can hold your shit you know, someone who you can cry in front of, someone who, if you're feeling really anxious, you can say, I'm feeling really anxious, even if they're trying to have fun. Like that was the problem for me is that everyone around me was trying to have fun. And obviously at parties, that's what people are trying to do. Um, but if you do take a psychedelic, there, there is a chance that you might get, like I said, pulled into the void and pulled into a serious or, or uncomfortable experience um, and obviously, you know, you never want to, um, you never want to dampen the vibe by having to tell someone, oh no, like I'm actually really not feeling good and I don't know what's going on or whatever. But um, I feel like that was actually the uh, kind of the lesson from those experiences that I had was like, you know, make sure that there are people around you 
that you can tell that it's 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 a lesson on friendship in general mm-hmm. and it's not that the people around me there I, I couldn't tell but it's just that I hadn't kind of opened those channels with them to make me feel like I could tell um, tell them that in the moment I would say try and just find a space where you can allow whatever's happening to happen so like go back to your tent if you can bring someone with you obviously do that but just it's safety especially in the outwards environment if you can just find that and and allow it to happen yeah and i think try not to like you were saying get lost in stories about how you're not supposed to be having this experience or you're going crazy or like this is a bad experience um and just let let the process unfold it's all very difficult if someone doesn't have any knowledge on how these kind of experiences work you know it really can feel like shit is going wrong so it's difficult so i guess also just you know try and try and educate yourself know what you're getting into before you do it you do it i think yeah just safe spaces i think is something and also like uh just the tools you know being able to ground yourself um okay like if we were going to create like a checklist for someone at a party not that like this is anything we condone but the fact that it's happening it is happening we have to just acknowledge that I think uh, if you have your home base, have a home base, mm. you know, have, have uh, food and water handy. Mm. You don't have to try and navigate that, you know, if you're kind of hours into an experience, it's still going on. Um, and have your buddies, have your yeah. safe people. That you emergency can homie, at yeah. least one emergency homie. <laughs> emergency homie, yeah. I think that's a good one. Mm. Yeah, Just as a checklist for someone that's yeah. starting out and wanting to experiment. And also, don't be afraid to start small. I mean, you're not going to, you know, you're going to have time to go bigger Mm -hmm. and grow with it. Don't overshoot it, especially with the wrong intentions of trying to impress or keep up with Mm. other people. You know, too often, I mean, the amount of girls that I've actually, you know, had to sit with who, you know, have been there with like a boyfriend or someone that they're interested in and they try to keep up, you know, Mm. um, yeah and it, it never goes well and then you really have to ask why are you doing this where where's the intention and in all of this coming from mm. you know and you just want to have a good time sure but what if it's not mm. are you going to be present for yourself to go through an experience which is not going to be pleasant you know are you going to stick with yourself are you going to abandon yourself and throw your toys out the car yeah i think also to be be clear about your intention are you taking the substance to party or are you taking it because you're looking for something deeper you're looking for healing because that was also the the confusion in me was like all my friends were taking it to have fun and a part of me was also taking it to have fun but another part of me was interested in the healing potential of these substances and I never really was clear clarity of intention is huge you know because it's kind of like you put it out there what what you're looking for and it's it's kind of going to come. So if you got half of you looking for healing and half of you looking to have fun and you go to a party and you don't actually know what you're looking for, you know, then you get half pulled into the healing, but you're like, no, I actually want to have fun. It doesn't, it doesn't work. And then you haven't created that safe space because if you set the intention for healing, you know, you're going to automatically create a safe space with that because that's part of that process. So just know what you're actually looking for yeah and then okay so then weeks or months after i think a lot of people have had challenging psychedelic experiences at parties but then they don't you know they don't actually know that there's an experience that they had that needs integrating 
it's like they had this challenging experience and it was a bit freaky and a bit weird and they don't know what happened but like and they kind of leave it behind like for example there was somebody recently who told me that uh, him and a friend took like a really really large dose of mushrooms and he had a very disturbing experience like I won't go into details but he had a very disturbing experience and when I heard that I was like wow like you should really talk <laughs> talk about this you know because I think that these experiences can kind of almost damage the psyche if you just leave them there you know they're so intense and severe so for people at parties or even not parties just people who have had these experiences um i don't know do you have any words of encouragement for why they should integrate it and then what's the best way to go about it when it comes to you know things coming up from an experience in the past and we're not sure what to do with it we're not sure how we feel about it the first step on the process of being able to actually integrate it is acknowledgement mm. and i think that's one of the hardest parts for people to actually get to is just acknowledging it you know and letting when you kind of acknowledge it you know there's this always this even with me sometimes there's this fear that comes up of like if i say it if i name it if i label it if i speak about mm. it i'm giving it power and i don't want to so we leave it there at the back of our minds and we don't give it power. And, you know, this is kind of where, again, things like a Vipassana, if you understand the methodology, is very important um, or useful, is acknowledging it and allowing it, because it's there. It's there. It's in your mind. It's there. Mm. It, it's, not, it's not just like gone if you don't acknowledge it. It's still somehow lingering. It festers, actually. It festers, yeah. yeah. And so being able to call that call that energy whatever that you know that idea or memory is call it out label it put it on so that it can come up and bubble to the surface mm. and then don't freak out as it's coming up to the surface it might produce whatever feelings it wants to produce whatever wants to come out whether it's fear whether it's disgust whether it's shame whether it's confusion whether it's bliss whatever allow it to come up and don't add any judgment onto it allow it to kind of rise to the surface and see what it wants to bring forth without attaching to any of the the content yeah. in a way. You're essentially creating a safe space for it now to come up. Exactly. Yeah. So almost like re it's allowing that to resurface in a container now that you're ready for it yes. and have maybe the people around you or the tool set or just the mind frame to be able to look at it for what it is mm. without yeah, without the the chaos of being in the situation mm. when it's happening. Mm. You know, and I think there is some power in that because if it's still lingering in the mind, there's a reason. Yeah. I mean, uh, our, our systems are designed with such beautiful elegance in mind in that we only really, I don't know if you've noticed with memory, we only seem to really hold on and cycle through things which still have a sense of meaning and learning that yeah. need to take place. Yeah. Otherwise, they don't linger. They don't linger. They kind of just disappear in the back of your mind. Traumas as well. I mean, I've had like, memories that I completely forgot about kind of come up again um, and you have the ones that kind of cycle through the mind consistently and those are the ones that are almost taking up your capacity to function mm. you know and it's about being able to provide the space look at them and let them kind of bubble up and out mm. in a way and then keep the essence of what's important or the mm. lesson and that's mm. something useful to integrate I mean this is the whole idea of like you know light workers in a way or shadow work really me rather say is about being able to go into the depths and transmute upwards into something that's useful. It's taking the gunk and bringing out, you know, yeah. the lotus flower yeah. in a sense. Yeah, and I can say from my own experience with my own, um, I would say traumatic experiences at 
Africa Burn is this particular one that I'm thinking of. For a long time after afterwards, I called it a fuck out. <laughs> That's what I called it. I thought that it was evidence evidence that I was broken, that my mind had a freak out, and that I just had this horrible experience, and you know, put it in, put it to the side, and just kind of hope to never think of it again but like we say it does fester and then when we had it was it was actually the first and only so far integration circle with the psychedelic society and we had a professional integration therapist there and I spoke about it really openly and honestly with a group of people and in that actually while I was speaking about it I saw the message that it had and I understood that it wasn't just this random like spaz out of my mind that happened. It was like, it was, it was trauma. It was, um, you know, difficult patterns that I've dealt with my whole life that really just came amplified into my awareness and I didn't have the space to hold it. And uh, yeah, of course it made me feel more broken because essentially that is the feeling, you know, that it really brought to the surface. And, and, and just speaking about it with people who could hold that space and being able to hold that space myself was so healing you know and then it's a longer process after that um but yeah just creating that safe space and and speaking about it i think is really important mm. yeah okay so most of the ceremonies or healing circles that i've been involved in have been uh vast majority white people and that does seem to be changing, I think, slowly but surely. Um, but it's pretty clear that psychedelics are, at the moment, more of a white thing. Firstly, why do you think that that's the case? And how do you think that we can change this? Okay, so in terms of how I perceive the root of psychedelics that have come to kind of South Africa, um, I mean, if we look at mushrooms, for example, we look at Maria Sabina that took it to the, you know, who allowed the West to kind of come in um, to kind of understand how mushrooms work and they kind of took it out to America and then kind of trickled down, um, you know, kind of Europe all the way down to South Africa. I mean, yes, we have our own local strains, but I think our, our knowledge and widespread uh, desire to use them kind of did come from the West. And uh, I think that kind of explains the, you know, the, the community in terms of the, like the more predominantly white community that's kind of... Uh, focus themselves around psychedelics in particular. Uh, I mean, you look at uh, LSD as well, and also something that we can consider from the West, you know, the big West that we like to call. Um, and again, that stems to the root of why it would be kind of a whitewashed thing in South Africa. Um, also, in terms of the people, I think that started a lot of the trans communities in South Africa, mm -hmm. where I think I've said it before, uh, where a lot of our medicine circles, it's called them, have emanated from. There's a lot of people that were involved in the first kind of um, progressive, you know, trans hippie communities, essentially, just to kind of say it as it is. And that was predominantly white. You know, we also come out of a state of apartheid, where a lot of these things, a lot of these parties, a lot of these ventures were started at a time of segregation. Uh, so there wasn't really this inter-knittedness from the beginning of psychedelics into local culture. Um, something that we also tend to forget about is 
African medicine as a whole, you know, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert on this, but even I know that there are, um, when it comes to indigenous medicine, uh, different classes of medicines um, that work on the mind. Um, I mean, you've got cleansing medicines, which are like your white medicines, for example, strengthening medicines, and they operate in different ways in the body. Uh, the African ideology in terms of how they view themselves is, uh, and I say that it's a very broad term, I, I very much understand that there are different tribes and different belief systems within that, um, but it's a completely different framework from the West. So their way of treating mental health, um, their way of understanding the self and what the self is and is not, is very different from the Western ideology. And so when it comes to wanting to heal or ex explore one's consciousness, um, that is going to look quite different, I think, to someone who comes from a more African mindset opposed to the Western ideologies, which I think you and I were both kind of born into. Um, and uh, I think Western psychology is starting to finally realize this, and it's coming up a lot in you know, textbooks that we have to kind of respect the, the views and consciousness that other traditions and um, cultures have. Uh, you can't take a Western psychologist and expect them to try and heal someone that has a completely different framework of reality. And, and I think that's the same with psychedelics. And I think this is the issue, is a lot of the framing around psychedelics and how they can heal and what they can heal and what they should heal is very uh, different to, I mean, just a, a plain example is uh, someone that's going through schizophrenia in you know some cultures is seen as someone going through a spiritual awakening or is going through you know i think it's called a twasa is the initiation process mm -hmm. um you know that is someone that might be seen for example as someone that's going to become a sangoma um and so trying to paste one framing onto a whole new way of living is a tricky it's it is tricky um and so, I, I, you know, when it comes to the healing that can take place, I see this being something that's going to be quite important in South Africa going forward. And this is especially because we're now having quite a blend like, of cultures. So you have more people that are black that are coming forth and claiming mental illness, according to the Western model, than you did have before. And with this blending is going to come the blending of psychedelics being useful for that population as well. Mm. Again, we go back to whereas just as a plain you know medicine being able to you know interact with someone's consciousness consciousness directly um it would be quite useful but with the integration with the framing with the narrative that weaves around the you know the use that still has to be able to weave into a language which each culture can understand mm. and that is still the steps which i think need to take place mm. Um, in South Africa in general, mm. you know, creating the context, creating the environment and creating the, the commonality of language mm. for this experience to be shared and be made useful for different populations. Mm. Um, I mean, even with the sharing circles, I mean, you know, just uh, creating a safe space for, to be understood um, as someone that comes from a different mind frame, different community, different way of life kind of coming in and having to share your experience with a group of people that can't really understand that is going to be very difficult mm -hmm. you know um, I've, 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 I've only heard of people from different cultures um, doing psychedelics and the symbols that they receive in their journeys are different from the ones 
um, that people from different backgrounds receive, you know. Mm. Someone that's a very strong Christian and they meet Jesus just as an example. And that can kind of divulge in a multitude of different ways. Um, And so I think, you know, the beginning point of things shifting, I think, is being able to open the narrative for people. Um, And just like, again, just starting with acknowledgement, acknowledgement that this is a situation and how can this change if it does need to change? Mm -hmm. Some say, you know, that perhaps it doesn't need to change because there are methodologies and ways within African traditions for them being able to deal with things like mental illness. Many say that it does need to change because we do have a very traumatized population that isn't actually coping very well. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the you know the Western model of mental health isn't really catering to them at all you know in in some senses um, so yeah that's mm. kind of what I good answer thank you yeah seriously thank you so much for this conversation it was actually really good to sit down and have like a you know safe space where we can actually just open up and yeah I hear your story yeah that was Nick, cool. thank you so much for having me again this has been such a pleasure for me as well to actually just sit down and like uh, you know share and converse and mm. a lot of these things you know it's again we put it at the back of our minds and we kind of forget about it and uh, the power and the value in it also kind of gets lost so thank you for this opportunity to actually be able to share and speak and you know, kind of co-create with you yeah my pleasure and there you go Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Mishka. Hope you got as much out of it as I did. Thank you to Mishka for her time and energy. And special shout out to Mars C, who you will hear in our next episode, who really encouraged me to to do this interview. Um, something, like I said in the beginning of the episode, that I've been putting off for a long time. So if you want to find more where that came from, I would check the psychedelicsociety.co.za website or find us on Instagram or Facebook. On our website we have a petition to reschedule psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms. If you sign that petition you will also be signing up for our newsletter which we're currently working on which will be an influx of probably quarterly or biannual news about anything psychedelic in South Africa. And yeah, also check out our events page on the website. Uh, We've got some cool stuff coming up, some uh, breathwork uh, sessions and some conscious dancing that we are just currently finalizing. And yeah, otherwise if you have any thoughts on this podcast or really anything that we're doing or you want to join or help out we've got a volunteer page Um, we're all very accessible so just send a message chat to us Um, yeah we love hearing from people this is a community based organization so you know whatever feedback you guys have for us um, is always more than welcome with all that being said I will see you next time. I hope you have a beautiful week. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.